0: One of my very first ministry assignments, even before I finished seminary, was to do a one-day Bible conference in Willis, Texas, a little north of here, to a group of very fine people that had come throughout all of East Texas. I had a, a great time, and over the course of the day, I taught primarily on the doctrine <laughs> of salvation and then eternal security. The group was largely Pentecostal in their theology, so the issue of eternal security was one that we needed to discuss some. And I think that they they struggled a little bit over it, but they accepted it as the day was finished. had some pr- tremendous food and fellowship. It was all great. And then they asked me to save about 30 minutes at the end of the conference that they might ask questions. So I did. I was fearing this particular time... <laughs> Uh, But being, being young and just getting started in ministry, I probably didn't fear it enough. So I rushed in where angels feared to tread. And after handling a few softball questions, I would call them, a really great guy by the name of Donnie, he's with the Lord now. He stood up and he asked the question that, frankly, I was hoping in that particular audience wouldn't come up. And you know what it is. He said, what do you think about speaking in tongues? That question got everybody's attention. They were all leaning forward to hear what my answer was. I don't mind dealing with that particular question. But you've got to understand, we'd had a really good time, a really good time of fellowship. Everybody was happy. Uh, they thought I walked on water. It was, it was really good for my ego. It was all good. But to be asked that question in the midst of a group of East Texas, I mean deep East Texas Pentecostals, I was a little bit afraid. But since, since I'm convicted that I don't speak for myself any time I speak, I speak for the Lord, I answered the question honestly and firmly, but in love. And I said something along the lines of, No, I, I don't believe that speaking in tongues as it is commonly practiced today, key phrase, as it is commonly practiced today, is a valid exercise of a spiritual gift. I went on to explain as best as I could under the particular circumstances, the scriptural and the historical rationale for making that statement. As you might imagine, everybody was paying very close attention to my answer. And it got a little wild in there. It got a little hostile, actually. And when the people that had organized the conference finally got it calmed down, that's the truth. I looked in the back, and this dear, sweet, elderly lady started to stand up. And I knew her to be the matriarch of several of the people in this wonderful family. Still, I love them all to this day. There was more than one family there, obviously, but probably 50 people from one family. It was a large group. And she said she had something she wanted to tell me. And I said, please, Proceed. And she said, I have spoken in tongues, and you're not going to come in here and tell me I haven't spoken in tongues. Who are you to think you could come in here and tell me I haven't spoken in tongues? Now, as I said, we had had a great day. And we had made a lot of progress on, a, on an issue that I think is far more important with respect to my Pentecostal friends than speaking in tongues. And that's the doctrine of eternal security. I think that's far, a far more important theological issue. So I'm trying, and as a a very young person, I didn't even have a pastorate yet. I was still in my second year of seminary. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how do I get out of this and still have them remember anything that I had said for the eight hours previous. So I didn't want it to generate into a brawl either, which I don't know how many East Texas folks you know, or how many of you are from East Texas, but it can do, just can can generate into brawls fairly easy with that particular demographic. So I told her, and she was a sweet lady, I knew who she was. And I I said, listen, I wouldn't presume to tell you what you've done or what you haven't done. I cannot argue your experience with you. But can I ask you a question? And she said, well, sure, you can ask a question. I said, what language did you speak in when you spoke in tongues? And she said, well, it was a heavenly language. I said, okay. I said, well, the interpreter, I assume there was an interpreter there, what did he or she say that you had said. So well, there wasn't an interpreter there. I was just speaking directly to God. Well, I told her, as, as, again, as nicely as I, uh, as I possibly could, well, the phenomenon you experienced may be something. I wasn't even going to get into that. But whatever it was, was not reflective of the first century gift of tongues. Because in the next chapter, we'll find out if there's not an interpreter there, you're not supposed to do it in the first place. She didn't speak in her own language. Like speaking French when you don't know French. She spoke in a heavenly language. It was a private experience by her own testimony that benefited her alone and was not for the common good. And there was no one present with the gift of interpretation to tell everybody else what she said so that they might be edified by it. So whatever it was, and I'm not here in this lesson to discuss that. That'll be a couple lessons from now. Whatever it was was not the first century gift of tongues. And I told her respectfully that she may have had a spiritual experience. I don't know. I wasn't there. I I didn't experience it. You can't argue someone's experience with them. Try. And you'll see it's a futile thing. But the experience that she described wasn't consistent with the first century gift of speaking in tongues. In fact, by definition, it wasn't consistent with what is defined as a spiritual gift at all. Because you'll recall, a spiritual gift is for the common good. Not strictly for one's own benefit or one's own edification. And I would like to tell you that everyone nodded their heads in agreement, and we all had a great time, but that didn't happen. The meeting ended abruptly as soon as I finished, and there were some serious arguments out in the parking lot. Serious arguments. Uh, one, one person, Donnie, the guy that originally asked the question that's with the Lord now, threatened to punch someone else out over that situation. He was on my side. I was glad of that. They weren't threatening to punch me out. This issue is an emotional one, to be sure. But we need to do our best to understand this activity that marks so many churches. And ask ourselves, in love, without judging the individuals who practice speaking in tongues today, we have to ask ourselves, is the gift of tongues valid for today? I shared with you in a previous lesson that what we know of church history argues against the legitimacy of speaking in tongues today. Chrysostom and Augustine, the great theologians of the Eastern and Western churches, respectively, both considered tongues obsolete by their time, and they were in the mid to late 4th century. Chrysostom actually said by that time, he was probably mid-4th century, a little earlier, than, just slightly earlier, earlier than Augustine, He stated categorically that tongues had ceased by the time, by his own particular time, and went on so far to say as nobody even really knows how they were supposed to have been spoken by that time because it had been so long that anyone had spoken in tongues. Augustine had some sympathies for miraculous gifts still functioning, but not speaking in tongues. He believed that tongues had long since died out by his time as well. If speaking in tongues was normative in the 4th century... We must at least wonder why the two great leading theologians of that time both said it had died out. And there are others as well, but you just have to at least wonder. It's not proof, but we need to at least wonder if it was normative. In fact, during the first 500 years of the church, the only people that even claimed to have spoken in tongues were the Montanists, who... We've studied them in our study on on pneumatology not all that long ago. They, They were clearly heretical in their theology, not just this, but the rest. But if we fast forward up to the 13th century with Thomas Aquinas, the next great, great theologian, I believe, in the history of the church, Thomas Aquinas argues against the practice of speaking in tongues on the basis of the fact that tongues represented known languages. Now, the Montanists, when they spoke in tongues, they were babbling. But Aquinas says, I don't believe that speaking in tongues is valid for today because speaking in tongues, when it was originally practiced, was speaking in known languages. And in the isolated cases of which he was aware that someone had attempted this activity, the individuals spoke gibberish or something nonsensical. And you, you should remember that Aquinas had a profound effect on both the Protestant tradition and the Roman Catholic tradition. And that's the view of the Roman Catholic Church even to this day. That's why they reject the practice of speaking in tongues, at least semi-officially, is because it doesn't look like the first century gift. And there are some Catholics that that have, since 1967, that have begun to disagree with that. There's a Catholic Charismatic Center not too far from the East Campus, very large congregation over there. But that's not mainstream Roman Catholicism. So all all I'm saying here is that Aquinas, who influenced both Protestant and Roman Catholic traditions, said that in his day, in the 13th century, there were some isolated cases. There's no historical record except through him. There are some isolated cases, but what they were doing did not look like the first century gift of tongues. So he rejected it, and that's why Rome still rejects it, even to this day. Another group that practiced a form of tongues was a group called the Shakers. The Shakers were a part of the Quakers, which was an American sect in the mid 1700s. Anne Lee, founder of the group of this Shakers, regarded herself as the female equivalent of Jesus Christ. Among the things that she taught, besides some heretical issues with regard to pneumatology, she taught that sexual intimacy is not valid in any case at any time. Even after marriage, it's, it was strange teachings that she had. This particular group called the Shakers got their name because that's what they did. They, when they worshiped, they shook and they danced and they trolled around and they sang and they did something that they thought might be speaking in tongues in some sort of trance like state. What we have here is something that's akin to what was going on in Greece in the first century in the pagan mystery religions, because that's what they did too. They would get into to a, a, almost a whirling, dervish kind of state and sing and dance, but I'm going to mention that in more detail when we get to chapter 14, probably two lessons from now. There was also a group in the late, eight, in the late 17th century, which was a group of militant Protestants in southern France, that we know claimed to speak in tongues, but they too had theology that was very, very faulty in every other area, and they were really more concerned with the overthrow of Rome, by force, overthrowing Rome and Roman Catholicism. They, they weren't concerned so much with theology, that was back, back seat for them, but that's another group that we know did at least attempt to speak in tongues. Uh, That group was wiped out. Rome didn't put up with that, and they sent an army and just wiped wiped that group out completely. The point is that after the deaths of the apostles and the coming of the age of the New Testament, speaking in tongues was not a part of the function of a local church with only a very few exceptions. And I've mentioned those to you. And in every case, the exceptions were people who held some pretty strange views and certainly were not orthodox in their theology. I mean, Anne Lee, thinking that she's the female version of Jesus Christ, should give anyone who was following her cause for pause before they continued. Now, this does not in and of itself prove that tongues died out in the late 1st century or earlier to mid 2nd century but it reasonably points in that direction. That's the historical record. One might argue that we don't know what happened completely in history in an exhaustive sense, and I would grant that. But if you're doing historical inquiry, you can't go on what is not recorded. It's called an argument from silence. Biblically, that's a poor argument in biblical study, too. We can't go on what's not recorded. We can only go on what is recorded. Otherwise, it's a bad historical method. In other words, the evidence, as it is, points to the cessation of tongues shortly after the New Testament canon was completed and circulated. That's the historical record. But what of the scriptural record? Is there any biblical or theological evidence that tongues have ceased? First, it's clear from what we do know about tongues in the Bible that tongues was a miraculous, revelatory gift. And the last recorded miracles in the New Testament happened around A.D. 58, which interestingly is only about a year after 1 Corinthians was written. Now, there could could have been others, but the last recorded miracle that we have in the Bible is the healing on the island of Malta in Acts chapter 28. From A.D. 58 to A.D. 96, when John finished the book of Revelation, no miracle is recorded. That doesn't mean one didn't happen. But again, we can only go on what is recorded, not what's not recorded. You following me? Miracles, like tongues and healing and the gift of knowledge that will come up today, are only mentioned in 1 Corinthians, outside of the book of Acts, I mean, which was relatively early, maybe Maybe 56, maybe 57. Two later epistles, which speak about spiritual gifts, Ephesians and Romans, both discuss the gifts of the Spirit at length. But no mention is made in these books of the gift of tongues. And those were written just shortly after 1 Corinthians. Again, we have to reasonably wonder if tongues were a normative part of Christian worship, even in the mid to the late first century. Why are tongues not mentioned at all in the later epistles of Paul or Peter or the writer of the book of Hebrews? Mm -hmm. I want you to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in verses 8 through 10 and read along with me. This passage is extremely important, of course, in the debate. Paul writes, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes or when the completed comes, the partial will be done away. This passage has been the epicenter of the tongues debate for quite some time, at least the scholarly tongues debate. And I'll tell you that there are some thorny exegetical issues in those three verses. That's why there are a variety of views. Is how to best understand what those verses are saying. When you find scholars who know what they're doing, lining up with a variety of different views, you know the passage is difficult and has some challenges. And this is one of those passages. In fact, the preeminent New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, has suggested that although this passage is central to the discussion, we must not lose sight of Paul's primary point in these chapters, chapters 12 through 14. We must not get so wrapped up in, for example, as we're going to in a minute, what does the perfect mean? That we lose track of what Paul's doing in the overall discussion. The Corinthians were a selfish and prideful bunch, which led to disunity in the church, which then led to a multitude of specific problems that they were facing. And the answer, we don't want to get Off the track here, the answer to all these problems was not so much a proper understanding of the use of tongues in the local church, although that's part of it. The answer was a proper application of love. That's his point. That's why I said last time, chapter 13, verses 1 through through 7 are central for the whole book. That's the answer to all the problems. So as we get into the tongues issue, I don't want you to miss that. Because if we miss it, we're going to get right back into the problems the Corinthians had. Because that's what they had done. They had gotten into such an argument, so much fussing and fighting about who had the gift of tongues and who didn't. And who was more important in the church because they had this gift and somebody else had this gift. If you had tongues, you were special. If you had healings, you were special. If you had the gift of knowledge, you were special. Or prophecy, you were special. But if you had the gift of helps, for example, you were not so special. And Paul says, how is that exercising love? It's not. So let's not lose track as we get into this material, this fairly technical material, about the overall message. The overall message is you're messing up. Yes, you have these issues, and yes, I'm going to give you the answers to them, Paul says. But there's a lot more to it than just understanding exactly when tongues died out, if they even did. I do believe they did. But there's more to it, because if we, can, if we understand all of that, let me paraphrase something he said in the beginning. If we understand the complete theology of the cessation of tongues, but have not love, we're nothing. All we become is a shrill noise. So let's keep that in mind as we look at this passage, because so many times, as it did in Willis, Texas, it can get into a brawl. And that's not edifying to anybody. That's not lovely That's not kind. That's not encouraging. So let's don't brawl. Let's know. And then let's exercise that knowledge and application in love. That makes sense. That's what we want to do. Love never fails, the passage begins. The Greek term, pipto, means to fall down, to fall to the ground, to collapse, to fall apart, or to come to an end. The contrast that Paul is raising is between something permanent, which, by the way, they're not practicing at the moment, and the things which are temporary, which they've given a place of prominence in church life. Love is permanent. It will never fall apart. It's never going to fail. Whether you're practicing Christianity in the 15th century or the 21st century, love is still the answer to whatever problems come our way. Now, the problems change from generation to generation. even And half a generation problems change. Sometimes we look back at church history and we say, how in the world could they argue over something like that? How silly that is for them to argue over that issue. It seems so clear. I wonder what people, if the Lord tarries 100 years from now, will look back upon our generation and say about us. How could they be arguing and fussing and fighting over that issue? Didn't they have something more important to deal with? Love never fails. It never falls down. It's never knocked out. It doesn't collapse. It doesn't fall apart. It doesn't come to an end. It's permanent. On the other hand, the gift of prophecy will be brought to an end. Tongues will cease. The gift of knowledge will be brought to an end. The Greek text, as the English translation I just gave you, uses a different verb for tongues stopping or ceasing as it does for the other two. And the change in verbs may be significant or it may be more rhetorical on Paul's part. If there is some significance to this Greek term, Paul's meaning, that by using pao, would be meaning something like tongues will fade away on their own. Something like that. So some people have made an exegetical issue here. They say there will be a time when tongues just die out. But frankly, there's probably too much made of that particular distinction. And the view of the cessation of tongues shouldn't stand or fall on Paul's different use of the verbs there. As much as it's been written. We should note though, as I did before, that tongues is a revelatory gift all three of those mentioned were revelatory gifts, unique revelatory gifts, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Prophecy involved more than just predicting the future. That's what we think when we go to a, a prophecy conference. They're trying to figure out when the rapture is going to take place or what are the events that are going to take place after the rapture and how they're ordered. What's the second coming going to look like? But... When we talk about the New Testament gift of prophecy, it's something that was somewhat akin to the Old Testament gift. In the Old Testament, prophets did predict the future. You have Isaiah predicting the Messiah's birth, and Hosea predicts some things about Messiah as well. Micah predicts where Jesus is going to be born. So there are prophetic things in that sense, predicting something that's going to happen in the future. But by far and away, the majority of what the prophets said was the essence of, Thus says the Lord. They were speaking truth for God that had not been put down in written form. And that's what prophecy primarily was. It was given verbally as a miraculous ministry of the Holy Spirit before it was actually put down in written form. After God's completed revelation to man in the Scriptures, that kind of prophecy was no longer necessary. Tongues were, according to the Pentecostal writer Myra Perman, the power of speaking supernaturally in a language never learned by the speaker. That language being made intelligible to the listeners by means of the equally supernatural gift of interpretation. Now, that, was, that's a tongue, that is a Pentecostal writer that wrote that definition, which I would totally agree with. Because what he's doing is going back to the first century and seeing how tongues were practiced in the first century. Again, the power of speaking supernaturally in a language never learned by the speaker. That language being being made intelligible to the listeners by means of the equally supernatural gift of interpretation. So he's recognizing that what was happening in the first century was a speaking of a known language. For example, let's say you were in a church in the east over in Antioch. And that church spoke primarily Greek. But there were some visitors there from Rome. And perhaps someone would stand up in order without two or three speaking all at the same time, and they would speak a phrase in Latin because they had the miraculous gift of tongues. They didn't know Latin, but they would speak a phrase in Latin or a sentence or a paragraph in Latin, and then they would, in an orderly way, sit down. Then someone else would now the person that was from Rome understood it, and he would probably say, wow, and... I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but most likely that person from Rome was also Jewish because this was a very Jewish gift. They would have understood it, but nobody else in the room did. So how is it helping everybody else unless there's an interpreter there? So the interpreter would stand up with an equally miraculous gift. He wouldn't have known or she wouldn't have known Latin either. And they would stand up and said, well, what Brother Bob just said was to our visitor here from Rome who speaks Latin but not Greek, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see, it's also primarily evangelistic. It wasn't primarily to teach other kind of revelation, but it's still a revelatory gift. So that was tongues. Now tongues were intended, their original intention was as a sign to unbelieving Israel. We'll see that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 to 22, which is going to reference Isaiah chapter 28, 11 and 12. All the way back in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah predicted that there would be a time when there would be strange languages that would be spoken. And this work would signify that God had begun something new in his plan that included the Gentiles. The Lord would now speak to all nations, not just simply Israel. The barriers had been brought down, one of the key ideas in the book of Ephesians. And so the gift of tongue symbolizes or symbolize God's discipline on disobedient Israel, but also at the same time the fact that he's going to bless the whole world. That's why I said a moment ago the the visitor from Rome may very well have been Jewish in my illustration. Because it was a sign to Jewish people that, hey, listen, God's going to speak to everybody as had been predicted in the Old Testament. Not exactly how, but as had been predicted. This thing's opening up. We failed. We failed. As a nation, Israel. We failed to get the gospel to everybody, and now God's going to do it in spite of us. So that's part of the intention, original intention of the gift of tongues in the first place. But again, I remind you, tongues was a revelatory gift. Speaking in tongues was a revelatory gift, just like prophecy was. And then knowledge. Knowledge doesn't just refer to ordinary knowledge, like to be able to do well on trivial pursuit or something like that, or a game show and win a million dollars. It was different It was knowledge given by the Holy Spirit, specific knowledge about God, about God's plan that was given by the Holy Spirit. It was a revelatory gift intended to edify not only the individual with the gift, but the entire congregation. The gift of knowledge refers to people having extraordinary knowledge about something with respect to God's plan that had been miraculously given to them by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are all classified as revelatory gifts. Some revelation is being given to the church with those three gifts. In verse 9, Paul takes the first and the last of those, prophecy and knowledge, to form an inclusio for all three. In other words, to give the first thing in the list and the last thing in the list is a way of saying all the things that are included in that list. So as Paul writes this letter in the mid-50s of the first century, there were three revelatory gifts that he says were partial. At least at the time he writes, track with me, love never fails. Love never collapses. It never goes away. It's permanent. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are gifts of tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. So what we know is that these, if we take the inclusio, to include tongues as well, which it certainly does, that these partial or these revelatory gifts about which he speaks here, these three, which are the only three that we know of, they were partial in some sense. They were not completed. But he says in verse 10, But when the completed comes, totalion, When the perfect or the completed comes, the partial will be done away. This is the verse, as you might expect, that so much has been written about. It requires just a little bit more extended attention in the few moments that we have left. The focus, of course, is over what is meant by the perfect or the completed. It can be translated either way. So that's been the focus. What is this word, the perfect, or when the perfect comes, what does that mean? But we do know for sure one thing, that there is a time in which the partial revelatory gifts will cease to become operational. But when? What does this mean? Well, several views have been proposed by well-recognized scholars. Some of you are holding study Bibles that were written by these folks. So let me tell you what you're already reading. Merrill Unger held that it refers to the completed canon of Scripture, the perfect or the completed Robert Thomas holds that it refers to the maturity of the church at the end of the apostolic age. Thomas Edgar teaches that it means until the believer dies. Stan Toussaint believes that it refers to the rapture of the church. Charles Ryrie holds that it refers to Christ's coming at his second advent, and Gordon Fee holds that it's referring to the end times in general. So you see there's a wide variety of ideas by respected scholars. I only mention people here that have a high degree of scholarship in their ministries or that are respected as such. They're all respected men. And the fact that they come up with differing interpretations of this phrase gives us an indication of the difficulty of the passage. Now, it's interesting that the six scholars that I mentioned, Unger, Thomas, Edgar, Toussaint, Ryrie, and Fee, of those six, only Gordon Fee believes that speaking in tongues is a valid practice for the church today. Even Charles Ryrie, who holds that the perfect means the second coming of Christ, he still doesn't hold that that means that tongues are valid for today. It tells us that one's view of the validity of tongues in contemporary worship shouldn't stand or fall on your view of totilio, or the perfect at least not on that alone. I don't think that the verse is irrelevant at all. But there's more to the whole idea than just this one verse. That's why I gave you some of the historical background to begin with. Now, without going into the specifics of all six of these views, time doesn't allow, let me point out that they're really divided up into two. Does the perfect or the completed refer to the completed canon or contextually, more accurately, completed revelation? Or does it refer to Christ's coming in the future, put another way, to sometime in the future which would follow the completion of the church age. Again, the phrase in question, totalion, is neuter in form. Hang in there with me, please. This will be well worth it, I promise you. Totalion is neuter in form. And ordinarily, the Greek neuter does not refer back to a masculine person. Ordinarily. It's possible, but it's not probable. And there's one New Testament example that I know of with the way that John starts 1 John. But it's, it's possible, but it's not the best first choice because it does violate the normal laws of Greek grammar. Now, it can refer to an event. A neuter doesn't typically refer to a person, but a neuter can refer to an event. So one might say, well, it could refer to the coming, but that's not really what they're saying when you're talking about Jesus Christ at his coming. Jesus Christ is the referent there. So all I'm saying is is that it's theoretically possible that Paul violated the normal conventions of Greek language when he wrote this, although it's not probable. One would have expected the phrase to be masculine if it was going to refer specifically to Jesus. My opinion is that the second coming view is not so much based on that word, but it's based on going to the end of the passage and coming back and reading it forward. Because if you read verses 11, 12, and maybe even 13, you might get, the, get, get, might get more of an idea that it's talking about this second coming idea. But that's not the way the passage was written. And that's not the way you study anything. You don't go to the end and read it and then go backwards. You come to the beginning and read it down. And we interpret the next two verses based upon what we see here, not these verses based upon what happens afterwards. It's just bad method. It's bad technique in any kind of interpretation. It's always best to interpret a passage within its own context. So again, I want to consider the context of the passage itself. Paul is contrasting love, which is a permanent virtue, and something that the Corinthians sorely lack, with temporary, revelatory spiritual gifts over which they're fighting. Partial revelation is being contrasted with completed or perfect something. Now think about it this way for a moment. There's an unknown here. We know three parts of this equation. But there's one part that we still have to figure out. We know that we have partial revelatory gifts on this side of the equation. There's partial revelation. And then on this side of the equation, there's completed something. Partial revelation completed something. Now, it's not partial revelation completed sunshine or partial revelation completed apple pie, those of course would be absurdities, right? If we're going to complete this, we need to at least stay within the context of what Paul's talking about. So that's why I would hold, Meryl Unger holds, Robert Thomas the, and, and many, many others. I just mentioned those men because of uh, their prominence. If it's partial Revelation, and the comparison is to completed, what do you think it might be? Revelation. It makes perfect sense. Partial revelation is being compared to completed revelation. It still doesn't give you the specific time, does it? But at least we can see that's what's being compared in this passage. These three partial revelatory gifts are being contrasted with completed revelation. And that's why I hold to a kind of a combination of Merrill Unger's view and Robert Thomas' view that take the perfect as the com- or the completed as the completion and I would say the, the circulation of the New Testament scriptures. I don't believe this occurred in AD 70. I feel fairly certain that there was plenty in the New Testament canon that wasn't completed until after that. Some people say that tongues ceased in A.D. 70 with the fall of Jerusalem. I know why they say that because I told you a moment ago that tongues is a very Jewish idea. And it was given primarily to warn Jews that you need to shape up because now I brought the Gentiles into this community and you're fixing me on the outside looking in if you don't get the program and accept Christ as Messiah. So I don't think it occurred in A.D. 70. I don't think it occurred in 96. The moment that, Paul, or that John rather, finished the book of Revelation. I think it took some time not just for the canon to be completed, because there were quite a few books that were written between 70 and 96, but it took some time. By the mid-second century, though, the 27 books of the New Testament were well on their way to being recognized as canonical. And this would accord nicely with Chrysostom's statement that by the mid-fourth century, the gift of tongues had long since passed away. Have tongues ceased? Yes, I believe as the gift was practiced in the first century. I believe it has ceased. The best evidence is that it died out gradually after the apostolic age. And by the time the canon was completed and circulated, it along with the gifts of prophecy and knowledge were gone because they were no longer necessary. We had God's complete revelation to mankind in the Scriptures. When the completed has come, the partial is no longer necessary.